Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. On the line with us is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author of numerous books, including his most recent, Understanding Marxism, which we just added to our lineup of Tom Hartman book club teases or tastes or samples or whatever you want to call it, which will be up on YouTube in a day or so as well. Professor Wolff, welcome back. Thank you very much. It is uh, flattering that you were reading from my work. I'm much obliged. Oh, it's a damn good book. I wanted to talk to you about the Fed, and I believe that Sean shared this uh, Axios Markets uh, newsletter with you that I got, where they're going through, and Dean, I'm not sure how he pronounces his name, Raboin or whatever, who does the newsletter, goes through and points out that basically the Fed has been just pouring cash into the markets. And what we find increasingly is that prior to the Trump era, everybody thought that there was, you know, no connection or no explicit connection between Fed activity and stock markets. Although the fact that LBJ lifted Fed chair Miller up against the wall by his throat and took it on his tippy toes and yelled at him for raising interest rates just before an election, I guess indicates that it's been a long-held secret. But, you know, the average person didn't realize that the Fed actually could swing markets and thus get presidents elected or not reelected. But the Fed has been just pumping cash. I mean, the total assets of the Federal Reserve right now are at $4.16 trillion. You know, our GDP is only $20 trillion a year. Um, what does that mean? And where does that money come from? And what happens if the Fed stops this stimulus? And why is this even happening? Well, that's the key question. So let's start at the end. In 2008, we had the second worst crash in capitalism's history. That has to be the starting point, literally, for all of these analyses. It was bested or worsted is the better word only by the Great Depression from 1929 to 1941. This was a collapse, and it was global, of capitalism as a system. It freaked out all of the leaders of capitalist countries. Those last four months, September, October, November, December of 2008, were times of all-night meetings at the Federal Reserve in Washington and New York City in which a desperate group of bankers and their associates tried to figure out how to prevent a full-scale collapse of the American economy. And by a collapse, I don't mean something you read about in the newspaper, but something you notice when there's no milk on the shelf in the supermarket, when there is no way to get your telephone to work, and all the other signs of social collapse. And one of the things that was decided at that time was that unless things were done in an extreme way, there'd be no tomorrow for the debate about what we should have done. You simply have to try everything. So here's one of the things we did. We gave to the Federal Reserve a basic direction. They would have taken it even if we hadn't. But as a nation, the president, Bush at the time, then Obama, they were no different on this stuff. They told the Federal Reserve, do what has to be done. Print money like you never did before. Create bank accounts for all the banks 
simply put numbers into the account and allow the bank to act as if that were its own money to make loans, whether it be to corporations, to governments, to households, it didn't matter, flood the economy with purchasing power in the hope that by doing all of that, you could stimulate, that's the word they used, a stimulus program to get the economy going again. And what has happened in the decade since has been that we have become an economy utterly dependent, sort of like life support for a very ill person, on this continuous infusion of costless, low-interest tons of money. The Federal Reserve buys securities in the market. That's what it calls when it accumulates assets on its balance sheet and so on, in order to juice the economy. Because if you leave capitalism to itself, not only do you get the crash of 2008, but they have now determined it is simply too dangerous to take the patient off. For a short time, this is my last point, for a short time, in the last two or three months of 2018, they decided they had pumped so much money in, they had to pull some out. They did that, and the stock market took a dive. Right. In fact, so much so that for the entire year, investors lost money no matter what they invested in. That's right. And President Trump got freaked because he could see that if he lost the business community that he had won over with his tax cut in December 2017, uh, by a bad stock market, he could kiss his re-election goodbye. So he went to work on Mr. Powell, got the Federal Reserve not only not to raise interest rates, but over this last year to lower them, not to end what they called quantitative easing, buying shares. Mm-hmm. They reversed it and started buying again instead of selling. So you had the resumption during 2019 of the life support infusion of endless money. And so the stock market did well in 2019. And Mr. Trump feels confident that between his base in the evangelical communities and elsewhere and the big business money, he can have at least a reasonable shot at re-election. It's a sad story because the history of capitalism, if it teaches nothing else, teaches us that the longer you delay the inevitable four to seven year cycle of downturns, the worse the cycle will eventually be. It's a little bit like not going to the doctor when you have a minor problem to discover that by waiting, you now have a big problem. That's what we're facing. So back in 1932, The Fed had pretty much after the crash of October 1929, the Fed didn't do a great deal for a couple of years, and the economy just went to hell in a handbasket. And the week that FDR was sworn in in March of 33, the last of the banks in America closed. I mean, it was just that was that complete collapse that you're talking about. He got us out of that, by and large, correct me if I'm wrong on this, by saying, we're going to borrow a bunch of money. And we're going to spend it putting people back to work because the way to get an economy working again is to put money in the pockets of people who will spend it. And that spending of wages will create demand in the marketplace, which will cause businesses to reopen to meet that demand. And that created kind of a virtuous cycle that and then you know went into World War II, which was the ultimate government stimulus that brought us 40, 50 years of relative prosperity. On the other hand, the Bush administration, when they were faced with a crash, said, we don't want to do what FDR did. That's what Democrats do. So we're going to use monetary policy instead of fiscal policy. We're, we're going to use the Fed instead of the marketplace. Do, is that a reasonable description of the difference between these two approaches? Absolutely. It's a question of how you uh, divide your effort to save capitalism between monetary policy which is what the banks and the rich people want, and they're hoping, which has been what happened, that that money flows into the stock market, which is what the top 5% of our people count on in terms of wealth anyway. Fiscal policy helps the mass of people, not those at the top in that right. disproportionate. And FDR's stimulus by pouring all that money in, and then Eisenhower continued it with the interstate highway program, and Kennedy you know, put a man on the moon. All of those programs produce long-term prosperity 
And, you know, I think you could argue that, you know, setting us up for another great crash was probably mostly in 1999, blowing up Glass-Steagall, deregulating the banks, although there were a lot of other pieces. But so you could say that if we were to use the FDR strategy, we could at least have another 70 years of prosperity. But if we use the George W. Bush strategy, the Republican strategy, the, the use the Fed strategy, what's the end game? How do they get out of this? They keep having to do the same thing. They have no end game. They have what you might call a continuing money flood game. It's like we've become junkies. Absolutely. They're dependent on all of this, and they're now focused in the short run on getting reelected. And then, you know, there's a French, one of the great King Louis, just before the French Revolution, when asked about the unsustainable money-pumping spending that they did in the days of the French Empire, he had this famous line, après moi le déluge, which means in English, after me comes the storm. Mr. Trump doesn't say it, because he doesn't say things directly anyway, but that's his policy. He's just doing what is necessary. He didn't grab Mr. Powell by the lapels, but he did so figuratively. He got what he wanted. He got lower interest rates. You flood the economy. You boom the stock market. Not much else, but the stock market. And that'll get you through the next election. That's the perspective uh, that they had. Meanwhile, and, and let me stress this, when you have a decade of the sort we've just had, with interest rates at or below zero much of the time, you have created a fantastic incentive for governments to borrow, for corporations to borrow, and for households who can't borrow much more because they can't sustain what they already have. I note that the default rate for college loans these days is 11%, which is unsustainable. You have now created a debt overhang an excess of debt that we've never seen economically before. If we have a downturn now, the risk that it will be very severe is quadrupled because of the levels of debt. As companies have a difficulty, they will no longer just fold themselves, but they'll take with them all of the lenders whom they have tapped for this low interest debt. It is an extremely dangerous situation papered over by looking at the stock market or unemployment numbers as if those two statistics dwarf or erase all else. Amazing. Professor Wolf, I so appreciate your wisdom. Thank you so much for dropping by today. My pleasure, Tom, and thank you. Great talking with you. Professor Wolf's most recent book, Understanding Marxism, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites, and you can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Brent in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Brent, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? This is a perfect segue <laughs> from what Mr. Wolf was talking about. I would love to see you have Francis Richard Connolly on your program. He was the screenwriter for a documentary from 2014 entitled JFK to 9-11, Everything is a Rich Man's Trick. Hmm. He goes clear back to the early 1800s with the de Rothschilds and how they have created a credit-based global economy. And it's like three hours and a half, three and a half hours long. And the next thing you know, once you start watching it, the next thing you know, it's over. You just get lost for three yeah. hours. Huh. Oh, sounds and interesting. Highly, From JFK to 9-11. Okay, Brent, thanks a lot yep. for the for the tip. Zach in North Hollywood, California. Hey, Zach, what's on your mind today? Happy New Year, Tom. Thanks. Yes, I'd like to give the silent majority some ammunition going into this election this year. Okay. Using two quick memory tricks. The three C's and the three T's. The three C's are a reference to what happened to Bernie in 16. He got sabotaged by the C's, CNN, the DNC, and MSNBC. They had him in a little three-inch box down on the right-hand part of the screen. They would not show his crowds of 20,000 or the fervor and the juice that he had. They didn't want that to get out. 
And so just remember the three C's. Okay. Now, to defang the term socialism going into this year, I have something I use at my gym. It's called the three T's. Any, anybody comes up to me and say, hey, man, why, why are you supporting socialism? I go, it's because of the three T's. You don't understand. Modern socialism is nothing more than policies that benefit all persons. And I refer to the three T's, toilets, trash trucks, and Tomain. It's something that everybody can understand. Tomain starts with a P, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the pronunciation is the right, reference. I got but, it. Yeah, you, you want your trash piling up around your yards and stinking up your place? That's modern socialism, trash trucks. Mm -hmm. You want to flush your toilet, your waste away from you, nice, clean environment? That's socialism. You want Tomain when you go to get your meat at the store? That's modern socialism. Simply policies that benefit all persons. That's it. Yeah. The three C's and the three T's. That's a good yeah. one, Zach. That's a good one. I think that, you know, I, I was reading uh, Richard Wolff's book on socialism this morning. I was reading it, Understanding Socialism, his newest book. And he makes the point that there's this spectrum of socialism. On one end, you've got, you know, really simple stuff like Social Security. On the other end, you've got, you know, the Soviet Union. And that most of the countries of the world that actually consider themselves socialist which would be, you know, the European and Northern European countries in particular, are really in the middle of that spectrum. They're, they're practicing socialism hand in hand with regulated capitalism. And it seems like a, a reasonable step for me. Yeah, Zach, thanks, thanks for the C's and the T's. That's fascinating. Appreciate the call and thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. A lot of other stuff in the news we'll get to as we continue here on the program. But Catherine in Burlington, Vermont. Hey, Catherine, what's on your mind? Yes, hi, Tom, and thank you. I go to a local grocery that's a co-op. And the other day I was asking them, what if somebody goes wild and starts stealing either money or food or what have you? What do you do about that? And they use managers at this co-op. They vote them in, mm -hmm. and they vote them out. You mean one of the employees? And are you talking about starts starts what if one stealing employee, from the company? Yes, yeah. and they say, "Well, that the manager of that employee or that area where the person stole from would deal with the incident and the surrounding environment of the incident." For example, if the person had been hungry and stole money, anyway, it would be dealt with. They wouldn't necessarily be fired. Right. So In a what's, what's your system? You steal from anything, anywhere, whatever, you get fired. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there, there's no shortage of stories, and, and I think a lot of parents can even tell these stories, and certainly my parents could, of their kids getting caught, you know, stealing a candy bar from a store or something like that, and the owner of the store calls the parents instead of calling the police. I mean, that's less frequent now than it was oh, 40 yes, years ago. Yes, yes, yes. But, but I'm talking about people working right. for Yeah, no, I, you know, store. business is pretty unforgiving, and probably with a co-op, because of its more egalitarian structure, there would be more of a concern about, you know, why did this person do this, what's, you know, where are they coming from, that sort of thing. I get it. So your call was basically a critique of raw capitalism. Yes, you talked about socialism earlier. Yeah. And so I thought I'd call. Yeah, well, that was a good one. That's a great observation. Catherine, thanks for sharing that story with us. Tom in Portland. Hey, Tom, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM. What's up? Hi, thanks for picking up my call. Sure. So you've had a couple of good calls today about just like a little and broadly speaking how to talk about socialism because it's such an uphill climb. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we get hit with these real mansplaining types. They've got a little bit of economics knowledge. And so here's what I find is a good way to go back at it. I say, I let the demand curve be my guide. I don't believe that a free market is possible if a person can't walk out of the market, simply window shop and choose to walk out. So if I need an EpiPen or I'll die, there's no free market. I'm a human being, I need water. You can't have a pure free market if after a hurricane and people need water. Right, and this, this is the rationale for food stamps, basically. Right. Is, you know, is so that... Anyway, so I was brought, yeah. 
So just real quick, Tom, just broadly speaking. So what I tell people is identify things where the demand curve is not flexible. Okay. As an individual and as a society, what do we want as a baseline? No matter how poor you are, no matter who you are, what do you want? Well, you need electricity, you need water, you need heat, you need education, you need stitches to stop the bleeding, so you need health care. So all of these things are candidates for socialism. Don't be afraid of a slippery slope. It doesn't mean that there's that we're at war with the concept of free markets. It's right. just that where a market cannot be free because the seller just has too much control if the product is an absolute necessity. Right. You're describing so things, Tom, that I refer to as natural monopolies. Right. Yeah. And so the, the points that the guy made before about the trash and the Tony, all mm-hmm. of these things are kind of go in line with what I'm saying. And I think you can you can sell it to people that way. And you start off at the individual level and you say, OK, as a community, what do we need? Well, we need we need to be able to communicate. We need ports. We need roads and right. travel between us and parks and public safety. And my tea is ready. Sorry. <laughs> I came across the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, So anyway, uh, I'll leave the rest of the show to you. Okay, Tom, that's a great observation. Thank you very much. And there was a fascinating article this morning. I'm trying to remember where I read it because I read like five, six newspapers before I go on the air. It was either The Guardian, The Washington Post, The New York Times, or The Financial Times. It was in one of the newspaper papers that I get, that I read. And although I read them all online. And it was a story about a tribe, a Native American tribe in Northern California, in Humboldt County, as I recall, that... They made some money with a casino, and they used that money to electrify the casino and the surrounding areas, you know, the tribal surrounding areas, the surrounding residential areas, using solar and wind power and batteries and stuff like that. And when PG&E shut down the power to the whole area because there was big winds and the possibility of fires, and they didn't want broken power lines to cause more fires in the area, this tribe, not just the casino, but the area around it, was still running just fine. And so they were taking in people from the local hospital, they were take, which had lost its power. They were taking in, you know, basically local refugees, you know, it's people from the community. It was a pretty remarkable story. And it points out, I think what Tom was talking about, the importance of defining exactly where the commons begins and ends. And what are those natural monopolies? Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's up? Happy New Year, Tom. Thanks. Back at you. In keeping with Dr. Wolf's book on socialism, I'd like to bring up something I think is uh, very pertinent. It's the contributions of unions, organized labor, to socialism in the United States. Uh, 120 years ago, the organized labor agitated for the eight-hour workday. It was eight hours to sleep, for rest, eight hours for yourself and eight hours for work. And that got us the weekend. It got us a five-day work week. Well, that was 120 years ago. Obviously, our economy today is so much more productive. I think what we're really looking at is a three-day work week. And if you look at, I think, Andrew Yang, the, you know, the, the guy who's really been pushing the UBI, the Universal Basic Income, he bases it on the coming of automation. Now, automation's here to a degree, but it's going to be more pronounced as the next five to ten years go by with the artificial intelligence infiltrating areas that used to be thought beyond automation, like uh, bookkeeping or even financial uh, advice. So I think that we're going to see unions build on huge successes for getting a better quality of life. And I don't mean people just literally stop working altogether. I'm talking about our forced participation in the formal economy of corporate America where we simply must have a job so we have a paycheck so we can eat and have a roof over our heads. I think that the push for the $15 an hour pay, which is today to see all kinds of stories in like 20 different states. Everyone's getting a raise here, right. there. And, and it's going to stimulate and, the economy and help Trump, by the way. <laughs> it's sadly, all these Democratic states well, that I, I, raised the... I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it. I, it's just that's going to be the main effect. Anyhow, Paul, finish up. The big push, I think, with organized labor is now going to build on the success of $15 an hour and go to, for the three-day work week. Yeah. We don't need to work as much as we used to in the formal economy. Yeah, I'm with you. Happy there New was, Year to everyone. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you too, Paul. There was a, a fascinating article about this in the Financial Times, actually. 
serious people are starting to seriously discuss these things. You're which is listening a good thing. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be right back with more of the news of the day in your calls right after this. People are always asking me, Tom, is the X chair really as comfortable as you say it is? And my answer is always, you bet. In fact, I probably don't do a good enough job describing just how great that chair feels. So take my advice, get one to feel it for yourself. Thanks to X chair's 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction, you have no risk. So if you're wondering if what I say is true, just try it for yourself. Once you feel the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, their DVL, you'll understand exactly why I love my X-Chair so much. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you, the X-Basic or the X-1 through the X-4. X-Chair can fit your body and your budget. This year, make a resolution to upgrade the look of your office and take your comfort and productivity to new heights with an X-Chair. Trust me, you'll be glad you did. X-Chair's on sale now for 100 bucks off. Just go to xchairtom.com. Now that's xchairthom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWheels and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. That's xchairtom.com. John in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Tom, I wanted to um, touch on a, um, just to make a comment on something for Professor Wolf when you had him on. I mm-hmm. uh, didn't mention he, you know, was talking about all this money that the Fed's pouring in right now. If they look up the definition of what causes hyperinflation. It's exactly what the Fed's doing now through the retail market. No, not really. There are two ways that you yeah. can produce hyperinflation. The first, or or any kind of inflation for that matter, the first is to debase the currency, which is what you're talking about, and we'll get to that in just a second. The second, and the one that is actually the most commonly you know, done, is to have an essential commodity for the operation of the nation to become scarce. And that's, for example, the commodity was food in Zimbabwe. When Mugabe took all the white farmers and basically kicked them off the farms and put local people in charge of those farms, many of whom had never run a farm before. Food production in Zimbabwe, and this has nothing to do with race, it has to do with you know who knew what they were doing. Food production in Zimbabwe collapsed. I mean, the food levels just, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like massive to the point of almost famine. The result of that was that the price of food exploded. And along with it, everything else did, and that crashed the currency. That was your hyperinflation. In the United States in the 1960s, and it wasn't just the U.S., this happened all across Europe as well, because our economy was so dependent upon oil, when the Arabs, twice in a three-year period, cut off our supply of oil, the price of oil doubled, tripled, quadrupled, you know, over a relatively short period of time, over about a year. And the consequence of that was inflation. And that's why you had 18% interest rates during the Jimmy Carter administration. That's typically how inflation happens. That's also what happened in Germany after World War II. The story that I had always heard when I was young was that Germany had intentionally debased their currencies so they could pay off the Treaty of Versailles debts with a debased currency. But in fact, it was that their economy was so devastated by World War One that in addition to reparations, the price of everything was just exploding. And thus the value of the currency came down. Now, in an economy where you have hundreds of trillions of dollars in circulation around the world, our currency is the reserve currency for the planet. Dropping an additional $4 trillion, which is what the Fed has on their balance sheets right now, $4.16 trillion, dropping an additional $4 trillion into the U.S. domestic economy, thus the worldwide economy, is relatively meaningless. It's not going to produce hyperinflation, John. Well, I feel that's the end game, because I don't know if you're aware of something, but the Fed actually has a seat on Wall Street. They buy up stocks, repo market, where banks are exchanging money all the time, overnight. And, and all well, they, they, they principally have that because any anybody who wants to buy bonds has to buy them, in, in, which are you know sold by the treasury, um, has to buy them through banks. And and yeah, they're intervening in markets. This is the plunge protection plan. I got it, John. Thanks. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. By the way, breaking news, 3,500 more troops are in the air right now. They're on, in planes on their way to Kuwait to be available to fight against Iran, presumably. This is not a good thing. And if you are not familiar with the history of World War I and how it started with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo, I strongly recommend that you Google it or read the Wikipedia page at the very least, because I think that we may be looking at a scenario very much like that play out right in front of us. And it concerns me tremendously. In World War I, it was basically, you know, you had a conflict between two countries, but those two countries had mutual defense agreements with other countries. And so as new countries got in, I'm on your side, so I'll defend you. It just kept adding and adding and adding until pretty much all of Europe was in flames. That was World War I. And here we have a situation where we're going after Iran, which just last week was doing joint naval exercises in the Gulf with China and Russia, two nuclear armed powers with combined armies probably larger than ours. This is how these things happen. And it just concerns me tremendously. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, you're former intelligence officer, Dave, right? Right, right, right. Okay, I always, I always appreciate your insights. What are you thinking right now? No, and I appreciate your comment. Actually, I need to get your opinion. And frankly, America needs to get your opinion. And I'm not trying to flatter you, Tom, but you have the clearest recollection of anyone I have ever seen on the events of the Vietnam era. And that's extremely important. I don't even know if you realize. Well, I lived through it. <laughs> I didn't go to Vietnam, yeah. but I, but I, you know, I lived, I was alive then. Yeah. And also your knowledge on economics, because you know war is ultimately a marketplace, okay? And also your knowledge on how America was founded. Yeah, so what's and your question? You, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, look, these, these events go, that are going on in Libya, no one's paying attention to. But Turkey, just the other day, agreed to send troops to Libya to support Fayez al-Sarraj. Okay, he is the, uh, the president of Turkey. Now, his opponent is Khalifa Haftar, who is a CIA-connected general. All right, he is a lot like, in, in Turkey, he's like a lot like Gulan. Okay, he spent mm -hmm. a lot of time in Langley, Virginia. The America supports him, but check this out. Russia also supports him. They believe he's a secular general. And Sarraj, who Turkey is supporting, is a Turk. He was born in Turkey, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, this is what I'm saying. America also supports Khalifa Haftar, and Russia does as well. Now, I see a scenario where the economy, liberals, we're going to inherit a problem. All right, I'm all in for Bernie, but, you know, the economy is important. An army runs on its stomach, all right, and a nation runs on its stomach. Now, if there's a chance of peace with Russia and China and to do the Eric Prince thing, to get America involved in transnational um, mercenary work, all right, you know, people may say, well, that's okay. It's jobs, baby. But here's the problem, Tom. The founders of this country, this country was birthed in a constant state of war. The Hundred Years' War, the War of the Roses, Europe was a very violent continent. If you were born into privilege, if you were born into it, your chances of survival were high. If you were born of a low station, your chances of death were very, very high. I believe, and I think maybe you do, disagree with me if you wish, I believe the founders did not want us to go down this road of perpetual war for profit. Oh, you know, Jefferson said, I hope I should never live to see the day that our young men are willing to be shot at for a sixpence. He bragged about the fact that we were not going to have a standing army and it would not be the last resort of poor people. But to just clarify all of this stuff that we're talking about here, I'm seeing a scenario where basically an axis and, and allies are emerging, a bipolar, you know, much like World War II kind of thing where... Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, and the United States are on one side, along with probably most of Europe. And on the other side, you've got Russia, Iran, Syria, and China, the Shia countries and China. And I'm not sure where Libya fits into that. I mean, the, the, the weird thing about Libya is that it's this giant, basically desert, uh, scrub desert, much of it, with I think it was 22 uh, cities that are just connected by these long, long roads. And they all kind of historically have run semi-autonomously. And it's a very, very difficult country to govern. 
And, and maybe you right. can fill me in on that, uh, you know, where Libya fits into this. But first of all, um, do you think that my analysis is accurate? Because that would be, uh, you know, that would be the, the World War III scenario, it would be the U.S., Europe, Saudi Arabia, Israel against China, Russia, Iran. Okay, okay. No, Tom, your, your analysis is accurate. Check this out. Why is Trump being so effective in negotiating with the Taliban? The Taliban, I've been saying it, I've been trying to tell people, the Taliban or a Pashtun-centric, they want Pashtun dominance in the Afghan area. Right. Okay? And in Libya, it is per- Berbers. Berbers are white Africans. Okay, that's traditionally, they are white all right, so this sort of thing, this racial and this, this religious stuff, it resonates with, with Americans. Donald Trump has left himself two options. There's only two options he's got. He can either bomb his way out of trouble or he can spend his way out of trouble. Donald Trump does what's good for Donald Trump, not America. Okay, you've got to be clear on that. And if he starts bombing his way out of stuff, there's the escalation because, all right, if you, you're going to have to bomb your way out of Iran. Which he did Iran, yesterday. Just yeah. Yes, because of the terrain. Well, Russia might respond, you know, in kind with parity. They might respond yeah. with parity because that's what World War II taught them. If they do, then you're talking World War Three. But you remember, a, a mercenary scenario clears all this up, right? Because mercenaries can kill over racial identity. Mercenaries can kill over religious preference. All right, and this is what I'm saying: to avoid World War Three, liberals and conservatives might come together to force this marketplace of mercenary uh, warfare. And I mean, I am really. The bottom line is the neocons circling the wagon. Why have any warfare at all? Are you advocating that we turn our our military over to mercenary forces? No. What I'm saying is. No, what I'm saying is, if Bernie, I'm Bernie no matter what, okay? I'm blue no matter who. But if they get in there, they're going to inherit this problem. And as sure. liberals, we need to know what's going on. I mean, do we want this? Do we want, you know, uh, Americans beheading uh, Muslims or, or, or Americans, you know, yeah. in civilian clothes, running around there with Russian cohorts, Russian and Chinese cohorts, doing war crimes? Yeah. I mean, do we want that? This is the, yeah. the curse of Mike Flynn, National Security oh, Advisor. Yeah. He's been okay. In this mercenary crap for years, yeah. and the thing is, you know, we need to be clear-eyed on this and the, and the possible ramifications and consequences. I'm with you on all of that, Dave. All we can do, I guess, is you know, right now, try to have a better understanding of exactly what's going on. But you're absolutely right. You know, in all probability, a Democrat is going to be the president in a year, although you know, knock wood, and they're going to inherit not only this mess but also the fiscal mess which is a whole different thing. And Dave, thank you for the call. Let me just rant about that for just a second. I had a, like a two-hour-long conversation with Lamar Waldron, my old writing partner and buddy, yesterday about this. Nobody seems to be paying attention to the fact that the repo, uh, the overnight you know, bank swap markets, that the Fed has put hundreds of billions, has had to throw hundreds of billions of dollars into this. This is still going on. This says to me that we are much like we were in 2006 when the cracks began to start appearing and the Fed started intervening in banking markets, which was the precursor to the crash of 2008, which was as bad, every bit as bad as 1929. In fact, arguably worse. And here's what you need to know about it or to understand about it, because I see that same thing coming again. And I, I boy, what a downer show today, World War III and, and a great crash. But I think it's important that we understand the insanity that these Republicans have taken us to. In 1929, the stock market crashed. The Republican president, Herbert Hoover, said, well, you know, we'll just let the marketplace sort itself out. Andrew Mellon, his secretary of the Treasury, said, liquidate everything, liquidate stocks, liquidate bonds, you know, let the market liquidate itself. It'll get all the all the bad blood out of it. So they just for three years, they just let the whole country sink into a horrible depression. A third of America was out of work when Franklin Roosevelt was sworn in the week he was sworn in in March of 1933. The last banks in America failed. Every single bank had failed. And his response to that, Franklin Roosevelt's response to this Republican Great Depression, which is what it was called up until the 1950s, Franklin Roosevelt's response was, the federal government is going to borrow money and put that money in the pockets of average working people, currently unemployed people. 
We're going to do it by hiring them to plant trees through the Civilian Conservation Corps. We're going to hire them to build roads and bridges and dams through the Works Progress Administration. We're going to build power systems through the TVA. We're going to, you know, and, and it worked. Right, pouring money into the pockets of working people floated the economy back up and got us out of the Great Depression. Fast forward to 2008, George W. Bush is president, Republicans are in charge, another crash happens, and it's very much like the crash of 1929, caused by many of the exact same circumstances. And Bush looks at this and says, I'm not going to do what Franklin Roosevelt did, which, by the way, produced 70 years of prosperity. Bush says, I'm going to, you know, that's the Democrat way of doing things, right? Put money in working people's pockets and stimulate the economy that way. I'm not going to do that. We're going to do trickle down. We're going to pour money in at the top into the banks. Trillions of dollars, $22 trillion it turned out. We're going to pour trillions of dollars into the banks at the very top, and some of that money will drip down to the people at the bottom and bring the economy back up. And what has happened? In the eight years since then, the stock market has gone up, but that money has not trickled down to the average working person at all. Outside of those states that are democratically controlled states where the minimum wage increases have gone into effect in the last two years, which are the principal engines of reduced unemployment right now, outside of that, there's been nothing for the average working person. But the banksters are walking away with billion dollar uh, bonuses and uh, literally hundreds of billions of dollars going right into the pockets of a very small number of people. That's the Republican way. But here's the problem. When Franklin Roosevelt solved the crisis by putting money in the pockets of working people and letting the economy grow organically because those working people then had money to buy things and so people started factories to make those things, that's not what Bush did. And, and, you know, Obama tried with the stimulus, the $700 billion stimulus. He wanted a trillion or $2 trillion, and the Republicans said, no, nope, not going to do it. In fact, $300 billion of that has to be you know, tax cuts. So we ended up with this $500 billion stimulus, which was nothing compared to what Franklin Roosevelt did. It was like 1% or 5% of what Roosevelt did. So as a consequence, the economy has not been put back together. The only thing that's holding it from crashing is the Fed constantly pouring money into the banks, which is still happening literally to this day. So Donald Trump is leaving one hell of an inheritance for the Democrat who is elected president after him, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, whoever it may be. They are going to be inheriting a world on the verge of war, if Trump hasn't taken it all the way to war, and an economy on the verge of absolute collapse. And we need to be able to understand this clearly and speak about You're it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Dieting stinks, and it's hard. Changing your diet alone to keep New Year's resolutions can be a recipe for failure. So let me tell you what you need to help succeed this year. Riduzone, developed by doctors and backed by two U.S. patents, Riduzone is the only FDA-accepted product that includes OEA. OEA helps you feel full faster and burn stored fat while reducing your calorie intake. So adding Riduzone makes it easy to resist those fattening foods that go straight to your hips or waist. After trying Riduzone, dieters and doctors agreed that it's the easiest way to maintain or lose weight. So this year, remember that dieting alone is just too hard. The easy way to keep your resolution and get your weight under control is Riduzone. Riduzone is exclusively available at Riduzone.com. Use the promo code HARTMAN with two N's to save up to 65% off your order. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Save up to 65% and get free shipping by using the promo code HARTMAN at Riduzone.com. That's Riduzone.com. Promo code HARTMAN. Susan in Saratoga Springs, New York. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind today? Thank you, Tom, so much for your awakening, for your teaching of people what's going on. Because, you know, I woke up late this morning, and my mother knocked on my door, and she told me the terrible news of Iran, and, and it scared the living hell out of me. 
we really have to start getting people to understand what is going on. Yeah. This this is a this, this is the beginning of a world war. It and could be. I, I Let's also hope it's heard not. that President Trump wants to install the draft service. Well, that will never happen because if wealthy children have to go to war, it will never ever happen. Yeah, instead the they'll do like they did with Bush. They'll start offering 10, 20, 30, ultimately they work all the way up to $50,000 signing bonuses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is like mercenaries yep. anyway. Yep. I love the last man. I, the last gentleman who called was very right on. Yeah, Dave. Yeah. Because what we've become in this country is what is unbridled capitalism to the point where most, I would say, for me at being 62 and, and being well-educated, I'm a lucky white woman, went to college and beyond, you know, I was privileged. And I see privileged young people today... And I have a son who's very wealthy. They don't even want to talk about politics. They're in their 30s, and they're, like, in their own world. Yeah, well, that'll change if the economy crashes or if, or if the world goes into yeah. war. Right. Tom, I just, I'm very upset today, and it was, I'm so glad I turned you on because it made me feel like maybe there's some people out there thinking I live in a very, very conservative Trump affluence area in upstate New York. And I've had people tell me, oh, uh, why did you have an autistic son? I've actually had people say to me that are for Trump that I'm draining the economy because I gave birth to an autistic son. I mean, this is... What a terrible thing crazy. to say. Well, that they, I've had two people say that to me. Wow. And that Bernie is a communist. And this has all been in the plans with Bush, um, yeah. Cheney, Reagan. You know, the breakdown of our economic system. And our educational system. Yep. Yep. Most absolutely. People, a lot of people that even have good jobs still don't vote or they don't, they're not even aware of who their local representative is in government. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real tragedy. It's down to America. Yeah. And it's the dumbing down of America that has been brought to you by these guys because if you go back to 1951, 1951, the country was coming out of the Great Depression, coming out of World War II, unionization was exploding. You had politicians like Dwight Eisenhower, who would run for president the next year, talking uh, as a Republican, talking about how important unions were. And Russell Kirk wrote this book called The Conservative Mind. And in it, he basically said, if the middle class gets much richer, they're going to start, women are going to start demanding rights. Minorities are going to start demanding rights. Children are going to start refusing to follow their, their parents' instructions. And society is going to go to hell in a handbasket. And in the 60s, when all those things happened, this whole generation of Republican conservatives who had read Russell Kirk's book, The Conservative Mind, they all said, oh my God, it's happening. It's true. We've got to destroy the middle class. And that takes us right to Reagan's efforts. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? As your previous caller, very concerned about what's going on. I wanted to ask you, Tom, what is it that we, the people, can do? Tom, I listened during the impeachment debates right before the vote. Mm -hmm. They talked about the framers, the founders. We didn't have uh, kings, dictators. Well, Trump is behaving like a king and a dictator. And I don't see the Republicans are going along with the Republican leadership as well as voters. And I don't feel very confident that the Democratic representatives and leadership is dealing with Trump in an effective way. Well, um, let's let's give them 24 hours before we start judging them, Pam. But I, you know, your question, you know, what can we do to stop Trump? There yeah. actually is a pressure point, and it's right exactly what you're talking about. He's acting like a king. The Constitution is unambiguous. It says only Congress may declare war. The president has no power to declare war. Now, Congress got around that, and on 9/11 by creating an authorization for the president to use military force. In other words, Congress was saying, we will declare war in advance, essentially, and hand the power to facilitate it off to the president. But, the, but they narrowly circumscribed it. It said it has to be against, 
if we're going to, if the president is going to use military force, it has to be against persons, organizations, or countries involved in 9/11, and and associated with Al Qaeda. That's right there in the legislation, in the in the AUMF. Now, Congressman Pocan was on in the last hour saying that 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 AUMF was overly broad. I agree. It is very very broad. But that said, there is nobody. Nobody who is suggesting that Iran had anything to do with 9/11. Iran was a Shia country. It was it was the Sunnis. All the all the bombers on 9/11 were Sunnis. 17 of them, as I recall, were from Saudi Arabia. There were a bunch of them. Or so 15 of them, whatever it was. And and uh, Osama bin Laden was a Saudi, and he was a Sunni. It, the nobody has ever even suggested that Iran had anything to do with 9/11. And so if Trump is going to use this AUMF to go after Iran, which is what he just did. He's doing it in violation of the law. And so I think, Pam, frankly, what we need to be doing is calling our members of Congress at 202-225-3121 or 202-224-3121. Both numbers work. It gets you the Congress's, the switchboard for Congress. Call your two senators and your member of the House of Representatives and say, uh, it's time to change that AUMF. And by the way, Trump does not have the authority to, to act against Iran. Iran had nothing to do with 9-11. Just that simple. And Tom, can I just add, remember, Nancy Pelosi said there was a remedy for a, a rogue president. She said the Constitution didn't account for a rogue Senate. Correct. And so we have to deal with it. I remember vividly Colin Powell presented the case for uh, weapons of mass destruction. Right at the U.N. I knew it was a lie when he said it. Yeah. 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 We all knew it was a lie. Well, apparently he didn't. I mean, I, I had a long conversation on the air with Larry Wilkerson, who was his assistant, Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, about that. And he was like, you know, we were lied to by Cheney, basically. They gave us false intelligence, and Colin Powell believed it. Uh, Wilkerson was apparently skeptical of it. Yeah, thank you, Pam. It's always nice to hear from you. I appreciate the call. Carl in Columbus, Ohio, listening on WGRN. Hey, Carl, what's on your mind today? War. Well, it is. It's good for absolutely, absolutely profits and evolution. I would like to point out that Prescott Bush, the grandfather of W., supplied fuel oil, apparently, to Nazi submarines before we entered the war. And money to Hitler uh, through Brown Brothers Harriman, and he was busted for that by Franklin Roosevelt, who threatened to throw him in jail, and that's how he got him to stop. Now, one of the, I don't call to hear my voice. I call to share with your audience some of the things they share with me. One of the things I'd like to point out, you have mentioned recently that the Bush administration lied us into the Iraq attack. Right. And I think one of your people mentioned that they knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction. That was of course they knew that. Scott Ritter yeah. and Hans Blix were running around the world telling everybody that there were no weapons of mass destruction. They had no, yeah, absolutely. Now, according to the web search, it was. Yeah, I, I don't think that we can modify people's names with obscenities. I'm sorry. Tim in Berkeley, California. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? I don't know if you heard about the situation with what happened down in Mississippi at a coke processing plant. They got rid of a bunch of undocumented workers. And what happened by getting rid of those undocumented workers, the minimum wage in the area rose triple. Hmm. Because people who were working at jobs that were $4 an hour were able to go into that chicken processing plant, or the I guess it was chicken um, a processing plant, and were able to make $11 an hour. The history behind it was the corporations that were there, which is Coke-owned, said, we're not going to be hiring any black people, we're not going to hire any white people, they were only hiring undocumented people. And therefore, that allowed them to actually suppress the, the minimum wage in that area. Yeah, By doing that, removing wage, those yeah. occupations, uh, and and, and it, it pulled it up immediately. So my question with that is, for me as an African-American man, I'm looking at the Democratic Party and I'm saying, I know that they're for me, but they're not showing it in a large way. The reason I say that is with Joe Biden you know, writing the crime bill, and then now you have Michael Bloomberg with the stop and frisk. These are two people who should not be at the forefront of what the Democratic Party is supposed to be, because to me it's a complete insult to... African-American men, children, and women. And so for me, I'm wondering, I'm like, Bernie is the way to go for me. Warren would be a, a good close second. 
and the rest are pretty much cast off. And I'm wondering, how do you feel about it? Because to me, the one people who aren't really being talked about and the people who are being uh, affected the most are African-American males, but we don't seem to be in the discussion at all with a lot of the things that are going on. So I was just wondering what you thought. I think your analysis is, is pretty accurate. You know, I'm right up front. I, I think that both Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have the best chance of beating Donald Trump. And more importantly, they have the best chance of being the president that this country needs right now. We need a progressive leadership. And they are not radical. So neither of them are suggesting anything that's anywhere close to as radical as Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights, where the government would guarantee housing and guarantee jobs and guarantee education and guarantee health care. Well, now we're talking about education and health care, but they haven't even gotten to jobs and housing. Yet. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so, yes, in my book, uh, Rebooting the American Dream, that Bernie uh, a cover letter over and had delivered to the other 99 senators when it came out, the last last chapter of that book is about immigration, and I point out that when you have uncontrolled immigration, when you have people coming into your country from very poor countries who are willing to work for less than the prevailing wage, it does have the effect of suppressing wages. And that illegal immigration into the United States actually is a problem that we do need to address because of its economic impacts. On the other hand, you do want some regular amount of immigration. You just want to regulate it. You want to control it. You want to say, okay, here's the, here's the number of people that should be coming into our country every year to keep our economy strong. But you know, above that number, it's going to start wiping our economy out, at least at the bottom end of the economic scale, which is where a lot of people of color, particularly African-American men, live economically. And so my solution, which Mitt Romney picked up in, in 2012, my solution was to say that we need to start putting employers in prison. People who hire yeah. people who are not documented should go to jail. And you don't need to go after people who are just trying to find a better life for themselves and their kids. I mean, you know, you, they, if they can't work, they will either apply for citizenship legally or they'll go, they'll go back to the country that they came from where they can find work. Now, the refugee situation is a completely different one. We, have, we created a disaster in the Triangle countries in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador during the Reagan administration. And, the, and then on top of that, Guatemala is now five years into the worst drought in its history, and it's causing literally starvation. And so you've got people fleeing gangs and, and fleeing climate change to the United States, both situations that we helped create. And most of them are not people who are coming here looking for work. Most of them are actually women and children and, you know, people who are families. And so, you know, we've got to figure out what to do with that. We need comprehensive immigration reform and we need to do something about our immigration laws and our, uh, and our asylum laws. But we need to do it all in, in the context of not harming the people at the bottom of the labor spectrum, for lack of a better or more elegant way to say it. Absolutely. And, and look, and I'll actually add to your idea. What I would say would be, here, this is what you can do. What you do is, is if someone hires someone that's undocumented, you start charging them at like ten, fifteen thousand dollars per person per day. That's something that will put an effect on their pocketbook, and that's going to dissuade them from wanting to hire other people. Yeah, that would be another way to do it. But I mean, we're perfectly willing, apparently, to throw not just undocumented workers in jail, but their children as well. I don't know why we feel so squirrely about throwing some rich white guys in jail who are hiring them. Thank you. And let one last thing, I promise. Sure. If the easy way to explain socialism is this: look. The tarp that they gave out with socialism, forgive me if you've said this already because I missed the first hour, but the tarp that we gave out with socialism, the farmers who get money for not growing things, the billions of dollars that they receive, that is socialism. Well, so, wait a second. Let me, let me respectfully what? disagree, Tim, because the goal of socialism is to help the average person. And tarp was to help the banksters and Trump's bailouts to the farmers most of that money is going to big agricultural corporations, some of these multi-billion dollar corporations that are getting billions of dollars from Trump. Very little of it is actually going to family farms. But I get your point. I mean, we give socialism to companies and rich people, and we give the free market to everybody else. Yeah. Well, yeah, because look, they're not getting that money back. I mean, it'd yeah. be different if they gave it back. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Tim, thanks for the call. Very thoughtful uh, analysis of our current situation. Carl in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Carl, what's up? As uh, part of the White Castle forums here in Columbus, Ohio, a bunch of old men have spent years working out solutions to problems in the in the country. Mm -hmm. um, if you allow it, sometime I can give you 
pretty good outlines of some of the solutions to the problems. Well, pick we one have. right now, Carl, and share it with us if you can do it in 60 seconds or less. Let's look at the, the model for taxation. Mm -hmm. That is one of the roots of our problem, of not getting proper funding for government programs. And what I propose is the food truck model. A food truck does not have any bricks and mortar, doesn't own any real estate. It depends on infrastructure, police to keep the roads clear, to chase away thieves. Depends on emergency squads if somebody gets poisoned, whatever. Right, right. So the point is that the food truck utilizes the infrastructure and can be based outside the city and say, or even the state and say, oh, that's not my problem. So how do you capture that? How do you tax the food truck? The way truck? you do it is to treat it like a food truck and say, if you want to sell in our marketplace, you must buy a license. And oh. that license can be in the form of taxation. Right. Or the license, the license fee could be equivalent to what the tax might be. Carl, thanks a lot for the call. Um, yeah, and apply that to our tech companies. I think that there's probably a more granular way to do it that is more, that, you know, that more resembles taxation. But anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. Boy, this day just flew right by. It's so great to be back on the air here with you live. We will be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So please get out there, get active, tag your it, and share progressive media with your friends. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.